So this morning we begin this new series, a series that I am really excited about. It is a series called Differentiate, and it is this look at these first teachings that Matthew has recorded for us of Jesus. And, and before we move much farther, I want to define the word differentiate. Differentiate, according to the 2018 Random House Dictionary, can be defined like this, or in this way. First, to deform or mark differently from other such things. To distinguish, to perceive the difference in or between some things. Right? And so we get this idea that differentiate is really this contrast or this, this difference. Differentiate is going to be our seven-week study through a collection of Jesus' teachings that are found in the book of Matthew that challenge, remind, and equip us to live in a differentiated way in our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence. Now, far too often when we think about the word differentiate or uh, we think about words like this, we begin to view it as total separation from something else. We believe that we are supposed to be so different or differentiated that we actually pull ourselves out of reality into isolation. We strive to be so different from culture that we actually then became uh, isolated or even abandoning those that God has created us to love as part of his mission. Now, differentiation was defined as the ability to perceive the difference. It is the mark that makes us different. But it is not the removal of ourselves from those that are different than us. We were not created to have our heads in the clouds and our feet on the earth. We were created to be here and now with God's mission. Not isolated, not alone, not acting in abandonment. For this series, I chose the foosball table as my artwork for this series to illustrate a healthier image of the word differentiate. All these players are certainly part of the same game. Though the colors might be different, they all are wearing the same uniform. They were playing on the same field. They play by the same rules. The only difference between them is that some of the players are looking in a different way. They have a different angle, and they are playing for different goals. These things are what differentiate them from the others. Now, the teachings that we are going to explore in our series, Differentiate, uh, is really found early on in Matthew. And Matthew is this follower of Jesus, and, and he finds that he's got to write down what he sees Jesus doing, what he sees Jesus saying, and the places that he sees Jesus fulfilling these prophetic words. Matthew goes on to write this in his own unique way, through his own collection of stories and teachings, the ones that he found important to tell. And we see that he develops his own really unique narrative. The narrative of Matthew kind of opens up with this genealogy, which seamlessly moves into the birth of Jesus and the first few years of his life. And then we don't see Jesus again in Matthew until he comes out of the heels of his temptation, his baptism, and overcoming the world, he begins his teachings from Matthew. And you'll see it as we study throughout the book in this 2018 year. How many people are still writing 2017? I almost said it. 
Anybody write it on their checks recently? Right, throughout 2018, we're going to be really studying the book of Matthew. And we're going to see that the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus becomes central to the narrative of Matthew. In Matthew's story, the crowds have started to follow Jesus. He's shown up, he's been baptized, he's overcome the temptations with the devil, and he begins to teach and heal. And for some reason, the crowds begin to look at him, right? He's on the boardwalk, they see him healing somebody. We were talking about this earlier, and the crowds are gathering around him. So he does what any good teacher or rabbi does he finds a place, a natural amphitheater on the mountainside, in which He can call people to himself to teach them what it means to be a follower of God, to teach them what it means to follow him. And so he takes his followers and the crowds that are willing, and he goes up a mountainside and begins to teach them our most important foundations of faith. These teachings throughout history that Jesus teaches the crowds have long been called the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout our series, Differentiate, we're going to be looking at seven of those lessons that Jesus preaches. And in fact, Matthew's the only one that really tells all of these teachings in his way. And it is the longest sermon of Jesus ever recorded. It, it starts with the Beatitudes and then goes through all of these differentiated teachings. These teachings of antithesis or, or a contrast, right? And so this morning we are going to look at our first exploration into these lessons of Jesus that Matthew has collected for us. We're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 33 through 37, and it's a teaching that Jesus does on oaths or vows or pledges. It's a teaching that challenges, reminds, and equips us to live a very differentiated way in our neighborhoods and in our spheres of influence. We might be just like all the other players in the game. We might dress in the same uniform. We might even play on the same playing field. And we play by the same rules in the human plight. The only difference is that we live by teachings of Jesus that causes us to live in a different way, to have a different angle. We play for different goals. And this is what we are going to see is really what begins to differentiate a follower of Jesus in the world. Theologian N.T. Wright says this about this passage we are about to read. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is not giving moral commands. He is unveiling a whole new way of being human beings. He's not just telling us what it means to be a moral human. Jesus is differentiating us. These teachings give us a new way of being human. I read from Matthew 5, 33 to 37 this morning on the overhead screen. I invite you to follow along in your Bible or on the screen with me. I invite you to pay attention to where you see Jesus do something that he does a lot in this Sermon on the Mount series. And, and what we are going to see is that Jesus is going to name and pay attention what was accepted as standards in their culture. He's going to tell them how it's impossible to live up to it. And despite that, he's still going to raise the bar and challenge them to live by something even greater, a new way of living, a new way of being human. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. And, but I tell you, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven 
for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. You cannot even make one hair white and the other black. And you need to say, all you need to say is simply yes and no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, there are a few places in this passage, this passage maybe most of us know well if we study the teachings of Jesus. I want us to pay attention to them to not only see their overarching concept, but also the cultural understandings of which Jesus is really dissecting in this text. Now, as we kind of consider this text and the overarching theme of the passage, it's obvious that Jesus is really asking his followers and, his, and these individuals who are listening to him to be people who are committed to truth, being committed to truth-telling. William J. Wilkins, a New Testament scholar who's known for his commentary and work on Matthew, writes about these things as antithesis, or one way to understand that is to think of them as teachings of contrast or flip-side teachings, or as we have called them, teachings of differentiation. I love the word contrast there. He says this of the overarching concept of this passage. In my fourth antithesis, Jesus stressed that his disciples do not need to utter oaths as additional confirmation of their trustworthiness since their faithful lives continually confirm the reliability of their word. Right? Jesus is telling them overall, I want you to be so truthful that you actually don't need to swear by anything because your word should stand on its own. F.F. Bruce says something very similar. Jesus is concerned here that perfect honesty which will make, with perfect honesty, which will make all oaths unnecessary. He also goes on to say, Jesus cuts through this. If lying had not become a habit, there would be no need for oaths. Therefore, the remedy is simple truth, not only in the world, but in the inward parts as well. Now, I think we get that. We think about the world we live in, the culture we live in. We have categorizations of truth. Oh, that was just a white lie, right? Have you heard people say that? That was just a courtesy lie. I told them they looked good when they didn't. Right? We have categorized big lies and little lies. We lie about our schedule being busy. We lie about what we really think about something. And in essence, lying, like in the time of Jesus, has become habitual. It has become normal in our culture. I'm not saying it has become normal for you, but in our culture, we live in a culture where this has become more than normal. Clearly, the overarching theme in this passage is a challenge from Jesus that our commitment to telling the truth is something that should differentiate us from others. Now, we could talk about this for hours. If, if this is actually true of us, if this is how the world actually sees the church, or if we actually see each other in this way. In fact, if you would have seen this week, Christianity Today released an article that a Gallup poll done in the past few weeks has found that only two out of five Americans right now believe that clergy are honest and have high ethical statements, uh, standards. Their viewpoint of the church is seemingly even less. Regardless if we think this is true of us or not, the reality is... We live in a world where trust has become amiss because lying has become so normal and habitual. Truth-telling is clearly something Jesus calls us to live by in this passage. 
However, it's also important to pay attention to the cultural understanding to what Jesus is talking about. In this passage, Jesus is referencing a well-known understanding that was accepted in their cultural understanding. We saw that in the very first verse when Jesus said, Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made before the Lord. Again, you have heard it said long ago, Jesus was referencing this truth, this commitment that they knew that they were supposed to be people who were committed to truth-telling. They were to be people who were committed to their word. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there are many occasions where Jesus begins by reminding his audience of something they already knew. This one was particularly known because Jewish teachers at the time were always teaching and insisting and preaching on telling the truth. In Jewish culture at this time of Jesus, and even in some Jewish sects today, there, are this under, there is this understanding that the world stands fast on three things. On justice, on trust, and on peace. They would have believed at the same time that there were four people who were shut out from the presence of God. The scoffer, the hypocrite, the liar, and the retailer of slander. I love that term, the retailer of slander. However, in this understanding, the one who gives his word says he will do something, be somewhere, or pay back something, and changes it was as worse or even more worse than somebody who worshipped idols. To change your word was one of the biggest insults in Jewish culture at this time. Now, there were even some groups in this time that actually would say, wouldn't even say niceties, like, you look nice today because they were afraid that they would get into a situation where somebody would expect that of them and they would have to lie about it, right? You would tell uh, your one friend, hey, you look pretty in your wedding dress, your next friend, oh, yeah. So they would avoid all social niceties because they were afraid of getting forced up against this expectation of truth-telling. What had become popularized was this obligation that truth-telling that arrived from a combination of understandings in Jewish law. And the layman's Bible commentary explains its development in this way. Jesus is addressing a crystallization of several teachings. Leviticus 19.12, Numbers 32 Deuteronomy 23 to 21 to 23, and possibly Exodus 27. Now, just as a side note, if you want to kind of read up on the foundational principles of this teaching on oaths of Jesus, I encourage you to look at these verses this week, but we will not have time for them this morning. However, these passages in Jewish culture were very well known. They were respected. They were held with great esteem, and it had obviously shaped their obligation to truth-telling. But what we see in this passage is, even though there was a commitment to truth-telling, Jesus is addressing their cultural practice of swearing swearing to truth by an oath. Now, in the time of Jesus, it had become so common to swear in everyday life on every little thing an oath. 
that became intertwined into their everyday life. An oath assured that the one who was making a promise was being honest or would actually stick to his word. And that's exactly what we see Jesus referring to when he says, Do not swear at all, even by heaven, uh, but for it is God's throne, and so on. The religious teachers of the law were not only permitting that people swear on an oath, they were encouraging it. They had such a high esteem view on truth-telling that they expected people to back up their truth with an oath. So what we see is individuals would then begin to swear on heaven or the temple, on earth, or on their own head, on their families, on their kids, on even their own life, of if, it would die, if they would die or not. And these oaths were considered binding before God, the ones that had mentioned things of the holiness, and things like, oh, I swear my own life, were considered in Jewish culture to be less binding. Now, our culture is similar. Most of us have signed oaths that say we will pay our house payments, uh, either rent or mortgage. We have seen somebody take an oath in court. If, it was, if we watch television or if we'd listen to a conversation in a restaurant or a pub for an hour, I imagine we'd hear multiple people say, I swear to God it was like that. How many people hear that on a regular basis, right? We're always swear. I swear it was like, I swear I'll be there. No, I promise I'll be there. I promise I'll do that. It had become intertwined and important in this culture in the same way that it is to ours. And for us, many of us take our oath to pay rent much more serious than our promise to be somewhere. I promise to pay my rent has much more weight than I promise that I'm going to come to that function at your house. What Jesus is doing is actually beginning to lump those things into the same boat. Jesus is taking issue with their cultural practice for two reasons. First, Jewish culture began to take an oath when there wasn't really a need for it. They were using meaningless words. Swearing by something had become far too common in their everyday life to the point where it actually became meaningless. Everywhere in conversation, individuals were introducing statements and stories by swearing on their own life or head. They would hear th- you would hear things like, May I never see the comfort of Israel if what I said isn't true. This was just everyday conversation. It had become such common practice that people lost reality and awareness to what they were saying and committing to. Words became meaningless and ambiguous. Now, certainly the Old Testament has kind of this promises and words that, that, and teachings that we are to vow and pledge ourselves to the Lord. However, these holy practices were now being cheapened by their misuse in everyday life. This is exactly what Jesus begins to refer to when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus even then offers commentary that we ourselves aren't able to do anything Uh, So why would we swear on our own head? I mean, we aren't even able to swear a white hair black. And I know that some of you have tried that in the mirror. Right? We have no power to do anything on our own. But here, it had become 
meaningless culture just to say, I swear on my own head that I will do that. William Barclay, a theologian, says this about this passage. Far too often, people use the most sacred language in the most meaningless way. This is exactly the first issue that Jesus has with the practice of oaths in their culture. William Barclay also has nicknamed this this trespass as frivolous swearing. He defines that as taking an oath where it was unnecessary or actually improper. Jesus' second issue with the practice at this time of taking oath was that Jewish culture had also divided oaths into two classifications, truths that were absolutely binding and those that were not. William Barclay, as I said, nicknamed the previous offense as uh, frivolous swearing. He has nicknamed this one evasive swearing. The practice believed that if you swore by God's name or something of God's, then in essence, God himself became a partner and an invested uh, person or an uh, arbitrator in the contract or the promise. Individuals that incorporated God in their oath were absolutely binding. They were treated as if they were bounded before the Lord himself, swearing by our own head or their own head, or something less was considered to be less binding and just this light agreement between people. They created a classification where God was present in what they say and where he isn't present in what he says. He was only present where they bothered to mention. And we struggle with this too. We've all heard individuals say, I swear we'll be there in time. I promise we'll be there in time. And that sort of oath we take with much more uh, seriousness than someone who might say, I will be there in time, right? I swear I'll be there is much more heavy and serious to us than I will be there. We have also entered this practice. In this practice, they also intentionally created then two classifications of truth. A high truth and a less truth. There was this this higher sense of truth where God was present, and then there was truth in which we can construe in our own way. Any commitment, Jesus is saying, to a belief of a lesser truth weakens the integrity of any truth. Even today we find this present within Jewish culture. Recently, Rabbi Louis Jacobs blogged, and he said the act of speaking an oath or a vow out loud, gives it binding force in traditional Jewish law, right? To actually say what you're uh, coveting yourself to, what you're oathing yourself to, uh, takes effect, binding force with God when you speak it out loud. But William Barclay offers this in response. He is a great, here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments into which God is present in some and involved in some and in others in which he is not involved. Jesus is saying to his followers, to those on the mountainside that are willing to listen, that God is involved in it all. And we should speak and live that reality. Sadly, the level of someone's truth in his time was based on what they owed themselves to. The bigger the swear on something, the more important it is or the more true it must be. However, we see in this passage that Jesus begins to blow up that way of thinking.
New Testament theologian N.T. Wright reflects on this passage. Better think before you speak, mean what you say, and learn the lesson that in speaking, less is more. Extra words, especially strong ones, call into question the speaker's basic truthfulness. If you need to add them, maybe we can't trust you at all. Jesus wants those on this mountainside to realize that those who need to swear by something probably aren't the most trustworthy to begin with. Our truth should be able to speak for itself. We should be weary of anyone who needs to swear to something to commit themselves to the truth. So if you're swearing to the truth there, does that mean when you don't do that, I can trust you? Why do you need to swear to the truth? Is your word not good enough? Studying the cultural understandings shows us that Jesus sees truth as a standard that can never be reconstrued, compartmentalized, or contextualized. We've considered this passage from Matthew 33 through 37, a passage in which Jesus teaches us from the mountainside on how he wants us as his followers to be differentiated by our commitment to truth-telling and to the integrity of truth and how that will differentiate us in our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence. But I also want us in closing to look at how this short passage equips us or we say what we can do about it. In the same reasoning, author Eugene Peterson says the most important question we can ask of this text is not what does it mean but what can I obey it's important to understand what it means but it's even more important to realize how we can obey first thing that we take away from this passage is that we should be differentiated by never taking our words or commitments People had begun to just frivolously oath themselves to things, to promise things, to swear things. They weren't even aware of the meaninglessness of their words. We are called to be differentiated as followers of Jesus by our commitment to our words and commitments and not to take them lightly. Secondly, we should be differentiated by letting truth be simple and speaking for itself. It is important that we realize our character should make an oath completely unnecessary. Our witness to the truth should be our own life and our own actions. It should be that we let truth be simple and we let truth speak for itself. We should live in a way that believes God is also present in everything we say There's not some areas of which are binding in God is present and other places where he is not. If we have spoke it, if we have said it, and we have committed ourselves to it, then we have committed ourselves to it. God is present there. It is an oath before the Lord. And we do not need to take anything as this place where God is just semi-present. God is present in it all. Somewhere between 150 A.D. and 215 A.D., an early church father by the name of Clement of Alexandria wrote, 
he who lives justly, transgressing in none of his duties, swears the truth by his action. As a result, testimony by the tongue in his case is superfluous. He insisted that followers of Jesus must lead such a life and demonstrate such a character that no one would even dream of asking an oath of them because it would be silly to do that because they are the most truthful people. As he looks at the church and as he looks at these people, it would be silly to ask those people of an oath because they have lived by such truth. Now, in Jewish history, yes, means a, a Jew, Jewish religious group were recorded in this way through the eyes of a historian, Josephus. Uh, he was a scholar and a historian, and he writes this inspiring testimony about a group of Jewish individuals. They are intimate for fidelity, and they are ministers of peace. Whosoever they say is, what, whatsoever that should say, is a firm oath, but swearing is avoided by them, and they esteem it worse than perjury. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. May that be true of us. That when people see us, they see that not only are we committed to God with everything that we are, and that we are growing constantly by growing closer to him on the mountainside to to move forward in him, but that also our word is without question. May that be written. In closing, I want us to just be reminded of this statement of Article 20 in the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective. It is a, a offering to what we have committed to believing as followers of Jesus, as people who attend East Petersburg Mennonite Church and our members especially. We have committed to upholding the Confession of Faith. And it reads, we commit ourselves to tell the truth, to give a simple yes or no, and to avoid swearing of oaths. Jesus told his disciples not to swear at oaths at all, but to let their yes be yes and their no be no. An oath is often sworn as a guarantee that one is telling the truth. This implies that when one has not taken an oath, one may be less careful about telling the truth. Jesus' followers are always to speak the truth and in legal matters simply affirm that their statements are true. Throughout history, human governments have asked citizens to swear oaths of allegiance. As Christians, our first allegiance is to God. In baptism, we pledged our loyalty to Christ's community, a commitment that takes precedence over obedience to any other social and political communities. Later on, the article's commentary writes, We follow the tradition which usually has applied taking Jesus' words against oaths in these ways. In affirming rather than swearing in courts of law and in other legal matters. In a commitment to unconditional truth-telling and to keeping one's words. In avoiding membership in oath-bound or secret societies. And taking oaths of allegiances that would conflict with our ultimate alliance to God the worship team comes forward. May you go today differentiated in your neighborhood and in your sphere of influences because you are not a retailer of 
slander. You are not a scoffer. You are not somebody who doesn't keep his word. May you go differentiated in your neighborhood because of your commitment to truth, because truth is uncompromised for you, and because your oath is to Jesus above all.